Hey folks, and welcome to Brown and Out. Today we're talking to Jay Covert. How are you doing today, Jay? I'm doing good. You are a Florida native. Tell us um, a bit about growing up there. Um, growing up in Florida, it's a mix of different things because for a time that was the only place I knew. I had never left the state of Florida, so I didn't know anything else. Um, a big part of my childhood growing up was also being raised and being assigned the identity of being white, even though I am mixed Asian and white. And my mom tried to incorporate as much of her Asian culture into our upbringing as possible. I was still told by my father and by other students in school that I was white and that I couldn't really identify otherwise. Um, the only exception was when I was trying to fill out like scholarship forms or anything, then my dad would say to fill out Asian to get the diversity scholarships as like a benefit. But that's just an add-on to my identity, not like a big part of my identity. Um, so for a time, that was something that I struggled with. And starting in late middle school and high school was when I really started trying to find out more about my Asian heritage, learn more about the culture, connect with the culture. Um, I started identifying more with Buddhist practices um, as a way to try to connect with the history of Korea um, and history of Asia in general. Um, and it's been a difficult time because my mom only has one of her relatives here in the U.S. with us, and she's all the way across the country in California, so I don't have much connection to the Asian side of my family. Um, and my siblings don't really identify too much more with the Asian heritage than um, I do right now. My sister tries to incorporate the culture as much as possible now that she has a daughter, uh, she did the first birthday as a Korean celebration, um, as a traditional Korean um, celebration of life um, for the first hundred days. Uh, she bought her a traditional hanbok, which is the traditional dress that girls wear um, throughout ceremonies um, in their lifetime, but especially at their first birthday. Um, my brother, my sister, and I all have our traditional Han books stored at home still. Um, but being white was still like the main part of my childhood growing up in Florida. And especially with Florida being down in the south, um, it was a safety thing to identify more with white than to try to identify with um, any identity closely related to like people of color, but it's still difficult because there's such a thriving Korean and Asian community down in Florida that I never got to really see myself as being part of. As I said, Florida is a mix of feelings for me. Um, as much as I don't like to identify myself with my childhood being raised in Florida, I still can't fully escape it because my southern roots are something 
that I cherish as well, um, being that LGBTQ folks down in the South are some of the most radical queer organizers that I've ever met in my lifetime. Um, so it's something that I take pride in as well, being from the South, being where there's such an active community fighting against all forms of discrimination, especially the identities of queer POC, um, especially trying to navigate the world, having doubly marginalized identities, trying to figure out where you fit in in any place. Um, I was raised in Central Florida, so it's kind of the dead center of North Florida being mostly Southern culture and South Florida being more of like a Northern mixture culture, kind of. So mm, Central Florida was like the hub of a mixing of those where it's still rooted in Southern racism and homophobia and transphobia, but there's such a thriving community in Orlando that I can't really bring myself to leave that heritage behind. Um, it's something that I want to return back to and try to find myself in that community again as well. I also want to ask you um, about things such as, uh, there's a popular meme, if you will, uh, Florida man. I want. I wanted to see, I, I'm not trying to, not trying to provoke, but I'm curious about your opinions on some negative um, stereotypes around Florida. Florida man is definitely a big part of Florida culture. Uh, just last week, my local newspaper from my hometown just did a collection of all the Florida man stories from 2019. So it's something that we both love and hate at the same time. Can you give me a highlight, just one one headline? Oh, I don't know any of the ones from this year. All of it kind of blurs in my mind. But one of my favorites that I've read about was anything about like alligators showing up in people's backyards and people freaking out and not knowing what to do with it. But usually those stories are people that have moved down to Florida recently, so they don't know that alligators just show up in your backyard sometimes. They're kind of are just natural pets in a way where we respect them and understand that they're going to show up in our backyard. And as long as we don't bother them, they're not going to bother us as well. Um, but it's always fun to see people freaking out and then the alligators just chill for a little bit and then go back wherever they were coming from. A swamp, one would presume, yeah, something like that. the river, anywhere the, the nearby. River. Mm. Gotta love them. Gators. <laughs> They're not going anywhere. You are a writer and a poet. Um, when did you first discover your love of the work? It was probably middle school for me when I started working on creative writing prompts. I found that it was a way to try to explore parts of my identity. Um, middle school was when I was first learning that I was not straight and I identified as gay for a time. 
So writing was a way for me to explore that identity in like a fictional world without having to tie it directly to me. So I could try on things and see how they would play out without necessarily having to identify myself with that yet because I wasn't sure where I was in the world. Um, then in high school, I took creative writing as an elective and it was the first time I got to try out NaNoWriMo, which is the National Novel Writing Month in November. And I started a story about kind of a mix of different fantasy realms, um, but there's a myth usually in Europe around changelings, which are little creatures that kind of abduct a child um, and then replace themselves with that child. And I did a story about the changeling and the child ending up finding each other and learning from each other their different places in the world because they were both taught um, that the new place where they were ending up was the only place that they had ever been. Mm. So it was an exploration of like losing your history and losing your knowledge of yourself and losing identity and them being able to explore the identities that were put on them and the ones that they want to take on after that and find out where they belong in the world on their own. What was it called? I never really figured out a title for it. I'm still in the midst of writing that one. Um, I think I got to about 10,000 words by the end of NaNoWriMo that year. So I'm still and they have trying a word to... limit? Um, NaNoWriMo, the goal is to get to 50,000 words by the end of the month, which is something that writers who have been writing for a long time can definitely strive towards. But new writers, it might be a bit of a struggle because you're trying to get about 2,000 to 3,000 words every day constantly. Quite the task, quite the endeavor. That's commendable. So, what inspires you as far as writing? I draw inspiration from people who are able to live their lives authentically. Um, Being a writer is something that I don't hold as like a main part of my life, but I use it as a way to explore issues and parts of my own self in a way that's safer for me. And so anyone who is able to live their life openly and authentically and always be true to themselves, that's where I draw inspiration from to continue writing because that's something that I struggle with and writing is my way of authentically being myself in a way that's a little bit pulled back from the full front narrative. Do you want to shout out some favorite authors, favorite poets? Of course, I definitely have to shout out my partner in civil disobedience, Jada. Oh, yes. 
Jada's poetry this year has definitely blossomed. Jada has um, not yet taken on the title of writer, but has been told many times that Jada is a fantastic writer and should continue. I've gotten to see Jada perform poetry at a couple different events, and I'm always proud of the work that they produce. Um, In high school, I drew inspiration from Sylvia Plath, who wrote about mental health and mental illness, especially depression, in such a real and raw way that it's not usually seen anymore in a lot of mainstream writing and mainstream poetry because it's something that's still taboo in culture. And so for me, growing up and struggling with depression and anxiety, it was a way for me to connect with someone else who struggled in similar ways. Tell us about drag and what it means for you. Drag is a way for me to understand where my identity lies, similar to writing. Um, It's the creative outlet that I allow for myself to see different parts that I don't normally get to see in myself. Um, Before I started identifying as being trans, I started getting into drag culture and loving it. And for me, that was an exploration of my femininity and the feminine ways of being and exploring the world. And so for me drag has shifted from just that exploration of my own identity but kind of um, an extension of my identity as a non-binary person who tends to dress a lot more feminine it's not that different to see me in full drag for folks who know my feminine identity Um, but it's a way for me to explore different parts of what feminine means to me because it doesn't have to always be the hyper-feminine drag that everyone sees. Who inspires you in drag? Or, (laughs) put another way, do you have influences outside of drag that inform um, that for you? I can't really pinpoint any one or anything in particular mm-hmm. um, but as I talked about the queer scene in Florida is so diverse um, the Orlando drag scene in particular is such a diverse and accepting world for the most part um, there's a lot of queens and kings um, who identify as trans and whatever identity Um, that means them doesn't prohibit them from also exploring the world of drag and drawing on different art forms. Um, There's also a lot of drag artists in Orlando who break the boundaries of the hyper-feminine and the um, hyper-professional-looking drag, um, where it's like mainstream and looking like a normal person would necessarily. Um, there's a lot of gore and a lot of SFX makeup artists, um, fantasy realms, everything in between, everything that no one likes to see in modern day life. Um, there's several queens that have gone on to Dracula and have been... Um, finalists in that world. There's a whole house 
of queens that kind of explore different identities of being trans as well. Um, they're all trans. Most of them are trans masculine, but they do drag and they don't let any of that prohibit them, even though there are folks um, like RuPaul and other um, gay men in particular who do drag to try to limit the identities of performers to cis men performing only. Um, but trans masks folks in Orlando are some of the strongest performers I've ever seen. They work so hard to get gigs. They work so hard to prove their worth. And that is kind of where a lot of my inspiration comes being a trans drag artist. I know you are a student at Champlain College. Um, you knew we were going to come to this. Um, okay. Tell us about being a student at Champlain College. Champlain is very white, just mm-hmm. as Vermont is a very white state. Mm-hmm. Um, Cham- and that's what brought you to Vermont, just to be clear? Yes, yep. Champlain was what brought me here. Uh-huh. Um, it was the only out-of-state college that I applied to, and mm. I ended up coming here. Mm. Uh, still question to this day why I made that decision, but I'm here, and I'm going to accept it. Um, but Champlain tries to tout itself as a very professional and accepting and inclusive community, but it fails on so many fronts on that. Um, POC students um, are subjected to a ton of discrimination. They are... This year, they've had to see a faculty member use the N-word, the faculty member being white, uh, use it in class with a couple of students of color in the classroom who didn't realize that that was going to happen, and then see that faculty member just kind of get exonerated of any guilt or any fault for that. And students of color have tried to advocate for better representations for themselves, not only in um, student-held positions, but in staff and faculty positions, because there are so few faculty and staff of color that we can go to and identify ourselves with. And even some of the faculty and staff of color, um, particularly administration-level staff, Though they may be people of color, they kind of take on the whiteness um, that is often perpetuated in places of academia and places of professional business, where they may claim mm, a person of color identity publicly, but then when you try to talk with them privately, they don't feel like they actually connect with you on that level. They don't seem to understand the mm, struggles that students of color have to deal with on campus every day because they can ignore it as someone who doesn't deal with it themselves. Our friend Jada... um who um, was recently interviewed on this very program, shout out to Jada, um, has mentioned that you and them are partners in civil disobedience. 
Do you want to uh, unpack that a little bit for us, for the audience? Sure. Um, Jada and I met at the beginning of last year uh, for Pride, actually. I was the newly elected student leader of INCLUDE, our LGBTQ student group. And so I was leading students down to walk in the Pride Parade, as we have done for the past few years. And Jada was there. Jada was super excited, super flamboyant, super out and bubbly. Um, during the parade, Jada was shouting um, affirmations at everyone in the crowd that Jada could see. Jada was just shouting love and acceptance to everyone. And it was such a fun experience. And after that, um, I think the next time that we actually met uh, was when I was working at the Women's and Gender Center at our college. So that was spring semester. And we started working together. And after that, we kind of clicked and never really got out of each other's space. Um, We became instant friends, we became partners, Uh, we've been working hard to advocate for students of color, queer students, trans students, and so for us, being partners in civil disobedience is just us pushing the boundaries of where student activism can go on our campus, because it's been such a lacking front for many years. Um, There's not been too much seen from students and so faculty and staff don't know what to do with themselves when student activists actually stand up for themselves and actually push the boundaries and actually know where their rights stand so for civil disobedience it's us working on protests and working on advocacy work and taking on leadership roles that allow us into spaces of privilege but also using that to kind of take away that privilege from those in power, bringing that resources, all of the information and knowledge down to people who need it and trying to build that collective front of activists and advocates all across the student body. That sounds like quite the job. I would say so, but it's also something that I enjoy, um, especially being able to work with Jada. But mm, being in community with anyone who is fighting for liberation is something that I love to be a part of. So, um, was it back in Florida when you first sort of um, started realizing that this was something that you were meant to do? I would definitely say that. Um, 2017, there was an activist conference at the University of North Florida held by GSA Network. It was called Queer Youth Leading the South, or QUILTS for short. Um, And that was where I got to see some of the badass queer and trans organizers from all across the South, not just in the southeast um but all the way reaching over to the southwest as well um there are some people that i met from louisiana who are working so hard 
to fight for black LGBTQ people in New Orleans and around there. There was someone I met uh, who was actually from Jacksonville, Florida, who was working on Palestinian rights um, at their campus in uh, Florida. They've been working on an intersectional campaign with Students for Justice in Palestine. They work at the uh, Jacksonville area LGBTQ center. Um, and this year they were able to join me on the National Trans Youth Council or Truth Council for short. Um, and I was super excited to be able to reconnect with them because it's been two years since I last saw them. Um, and all of the organizers that I met that day kind of cemented the fact that I need to be working on this and it's something that I not only feel a calling to, but also love to do because it builds that community that I've long fought for and tried to find in myself and others. It's the community that I call my chosen family, um, my second, third, fourth, whatever home. Every community of queer organizers that I've met have always been part of that family and have been another home to me. As it goes. <clears throat> yeah. Chosen family. It's a real thing. You are a student of the mind. Psychology. <clears throat> what was the impetus behind choosing that major? I know you're also a double major. <laughs> um, education as well, right? Yes. Okay. Do you want to share a bit about how those found you <laughs> for me as i said i struggled with depression and anxiety in high school and i tried to find therapy i tried to find resources to try to not really better myself, but just try to not struggle as much. And I found that the therapists there, um, they were lacking in competent care for anyone of different races. They were lacking in competent care for anyone who was LGBTQ. Um, they didn't understand that being trans is not the reason for my depression that's just a facet of my identity and yet it may cause instances of depression but it's not the reason for it and so for me I wanted to study psychology because I wanted to provide that care I wanted to become a resource for people who were looking for really competent uh, mental health care that they couldn't find otherwise. I wanted to be a mental health counselor, in particular for LGBTQ plus youth of color. And I was going to try to bring all of that back home to the South because the resources down there are so lacking. And so I wanted to come up here. I was hoping that I would find better resources up here that I could connect with and learn from and then bring it down. But that obviously hasn't much happened um, but that's where I wanted to study psychology and then for education 
I've always loved working with students. I've loved working with young kids. In high school, I got to work with preschoolers for a year and help teach them and prepare them for kindergarten. My high school had a preschool program that we ran um, by all of the students. And from that, I fell in love with being able to teach and educate Um, For me, education is not about structured schooling, but it's more of just learning and being part of a community that wants to expand themselves and be better always. You spoke for a a bit about the National Trans Youth Council, or TRUTH. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit more about your work with them or maybe how you got started with them? Yeah. Um, So at Quilts, I met members of Truth Council's uh, former cohorts who came to give their storytelling workshop. Um, Truth is a project that focuses on storytelling and reforming the narrative around what being a trans uh, person means especially for trans youth and so they presented a storytelling workshop trying to help us get the resources to tell our narrative in a way that is authentic to us and also in particular help us with telling our story to media without letting them derail our narrative, telling us tips and tricks on how to make sure that the media can't just take sound bites from our story and make it into something different. And that was something really powerful. And one of the members from Truth back then invited me to apply, so I waited until the 2018 applications opened up and I applied. Um, I didn't get in at first, but then a few months later, I got another email back saying that some spots had opened up. Um, some members that had applied weren't able to commit anymore, and so I was invited to join the council. And so I've been on the council since April of 2018, and we've been able to go to a lot of different gatherings where we meet all of the organizers from across the U.S. Um, Last year, I was part of the Southeastern cohort, so I was able to meet with folks from the Southeast. We had a regional gathering in Atlanta, Georgia, and I got to meet people from Song, which is Southerners on New Ground. It's a queer POC-led organization that's really um, fighting for liberation and working in true radical activism. It's not a mainstream organization. It's not um, trying to just get rights that the state will allow them, but it's really trying to build community and coalition and especially love and acceptance across the South for queer POC who don't have that in their own families and their own lives. And then this year I decided to join the Northeast Council, and so I had our regional gathering in D.C., and I got to meet some of the organizers from around the Northeast. Um, We were at D.C. during D.C. Youth Pride, which was really exciting to see. So it was a really 
lovely scene to be able to explore the city in. Especially it was June, so it was during Pride Month. Um, and so a lot of the work has been really just connecting with the other youth organizers on the council. Um, we go to National Gathering every year, which is a meeting of all GSA network-affiliated groups from across the U.S., so state-led organizations, GSA clubs, um, and then Truth as a member of the GSA network all get to come together, present different workshops, and build community with each other for folks who don't get to see anyone um, outside of their own communities very often. And then we also have a National Training Institute every year where we work on our annual campaign, GSA Day for Gender Justice, which is centered around how to change the narrative of liberation so that it fits with themes of gender justice, especially for trans youth. So last year for our campaign, we actually worked on and released a manifesto building off of the work of the Young Lords, uh, the Black Panther Party, and the Third World Liberation Front, drawing inspiration from their words and their manifestos, and we released Truth Council's nine-point platform. And so since we released it last year, we've taken on the task of every year taking one point from our manifesto and making that the theme for each year's annual campaign. So for this year, um, the first point of our platform is we call for the right for self-determination and control of our own destinies. So we centered our campaign about being able to determine for yourself what your life is going to become, what your narrative means to you, and control where you go from there. And so we had a variety of media that we worked on and released this year, including zines, um, podcast episodes, and a collective poem that we wrote together. And you can find all of that on our website, ourtranstruth.org. Um, all of our GSA Day for Gender Justice campaigns are always living on that website. And it's a really inspirational front to see not only members of Truth Council work on that, but also see GSA club members from across the U.S. being able to participate in our campaign and share their own art creations and their own narratives of what the themes of our manifesto mean to them. It sounds like you're really empowering people, which is wonderful. Um, along those lines, are you able to talk about your work um, at Edmonds? Yeah. <clears throat> so this year for one of my classes, um, we were supposed to work on a service learning project. And so I came into that really wanting to develop something to work with LGBTQ youth. Um, and so my teacher found out that Edmonds Middle School was looking to revamp their GSA club called UBU, and they were looking for an adult facilitator. But there was also a group of trans and non-binary students um, who... <laughs> 
contacted the sixth grade counselor and wanted to find a way to meet together during lunch just to have a community of trans-identified students um, to be able to share space with each other. And so this semester, I've been meeting with that group during lunch once a week on Tuesdays, and then I've been working on going through hiring processes. Um, And so next semester, I will start out working with UBU and being the adult facilitator for that club. And I'm really excited. Um, I've been working on creating plans of what I want to see, but I also have centered all of that in the students being able to take control for themselves. Um, Drawing inspiration from Truth Council's manifesto, I want them to be able to learn how to self-determine and control their own words. That's so awesome. I'm so happy that you're doing that work. It sounds like it's um, purposeful for you and also going to be very beneficial for those kids, for sure. Um, So, is there anything else uh, today you'd like to uh, expound upon, um, bequeath us with, or... um, Bestow, bestow upon us today. Is there anything you'd like to bestow upon us today? Anything else? Um, The last thing that I want to mention is that Truth Council is in the midst of our um, hiring for our next cohort. And so we're looking for folks to apply. Our age limit is 13 to 22. Um but that you have to be 20 when you start because it's a two-year cohort, and so you'll work on the campaigns for two years. And we're especially looking for queer youth of color, uh, trans youth of color. We're looking specifically for the younger generation, anyone who is in middle school and high school in particular. We're so full of a lot of older um seniors in high schools and college age folks that we really want to bring the council back to leading it from youth perspective and so we want to encourage any trans students of color to apply on our website now i'd like to ask what does black and brown queer culture in vermont look like to you I think for me, it's really rooted in just finding community with each other. Um, Given that Vermont is so white, but not only that, it's rural for any part outside of the Burlington area. It's so hard to find members of your own community. And so for me, um, it just means being able to find that community, find that love and find people that you care about and care about you. In whichever way you can, mm-hmm. right? When do you feel most brown and out? I think I feel most brown and out when I'm in that community, especially when I'm with um, Jada in particular. <laughs> um, anytime I get to see Jada or see anyone else from the LGBTQ student group on campus or 
from the Pride Center or any other LGBTQ organization um, in the state of Vermont, that's when I feel the most liberated in my own identities. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Jay. Um, You're wonderful, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Um, Thank you for letting me be here, and thank you for inviting me on.